Welcome back to the Untold History of the United States. In today's episode, we will be covering the 1980s, a time where tensions between the United States and the USSR were rising, Ronald Reagan was the US president, and the Berlin Wall had fallen. To help us uncover this decade, we welcome Professor Kuznick from the American University. Thank you for being here. Happy to be with you, Matt. So, Professor, what was the state of US politics during the 1980 presidential campaign? Well, um, Jimmy Carter had ended his presidency on a down note. He had help from others, but uh, the U.S. Had, be, had gotten involved in Afghanistan, although most Americans didn't know the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan and uh, the role that Brzezinski played in f almost forcing the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, but what they did know was that there had been a revolution in Iran and that Americans were taken hostage. And Jimmy Carter basically became a hostage in the White House. It limited his campaigning. Uh, there was an attempt, a rescue attempt, but that was a fiasco. So Jimmy Carter had gotten off to a good start the first couple of years of his presidency really moved sharply to the right during the last two years of his presidency. And he started to voice the policies that Brzezinski was drilling into his head. Uh, and Brzezinski actually brags about this in his memoir. Brzezinski says that He insisted on giving the president's daily brief by himself to Jimmy Carter. Hmm. Brzezinski was somewhat influential, very influential in getting Carter into the White House in the first place, because Brzezinski was really the head of David Rockefeller's Council on Foreign Relations. And the Council on Foreign Relations transformed Jimmy Carter from a local Georgia governor and peanut farmer to somebody with national pretensions, and that helped catapult him to national visibility and into the presidency. And Brzezinski was the brains behind this trilateral commission. And so uh, initially, Carter was off to a pretty progressive start, but once Brzezinski was able to give him his daily briefings by himself, instead of the CIA, which usually conducted the daily briefings, Brzezinski bragged that he would soon hear his own words coming out of Carter's mouth. And the last two years of Carter's presidency, he moved sharply to the right in terms of El Salvador, in terms of the Middle East with the Carter Doctrine, in terms of defense spending, big increase in defense spending, in terms of involvement in Afghanistan behind the scenes, uh, pretty much across the board, Carter moved sharply to the right became very hostile to the Soviet Union, pulled the US out of the 1980 Olympics and uh, really provided the legitimacy for the extreme right-wing policies that Reagan was going to pursue in the 1980s. But Carter really paved the way 
unknowingly. And I say that despite the fact that I like Jimmy Carter and that I think Carter has been the best former president uh, since he uh, left the White House. The best ex-president the United States has had since John Quincy Adams, we could say. Wow. Uh, and, uh, but, but as president, I think his presidency was a failed presidency and somewhat of a disaster. And Reagan, we don't know all the details yet. A lot of it is murky, but there is good reason to believe that Reagan's people cut a deal with the Iranians to hold the U.S. hostages until after Carter was out of office. So the Iranian revolution occurs in 1979. The Americans are held hostage, and that becomes the major focus of America's politics and the election in 1980. Reagan won in a landslide. Uh, Carter's popularity had plummeted. And uh, so Reagan came into office with a lot of members of the uh, committee, uh, let's say the CPD, I think it's called the Committee on the Present Danger. Uh, they, they were very different from the trilateralists under, uh, under Carter. They were much more hardline anti-communist cold warriors and they were gonna change America's policy and they did so under Ronald Reagan. And how did Reagan, what was Reagan's approach towards the Soviet Union? What was he trying to seek? Um, well, Reagan talked about the Soviet Union as the evil empire. Basically what Reagan did is he ended two decades of detente or a decade and a half of detente with the Soviet Union. We had had increasingly friendly relations and Reagan was gonna now rev revise that. And uh, sometimes we talk about the early 1980s as the second Cold War. So if we wanna say that the first Cold War ended in some sense with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we were on the road to pre-peace and friendlier relations, yeah. Reagan set us back into the era of hostile relations. And uh, what he did during that time, he massively increased defense spending uh, by 1985, he had increased defense spending, I think, 51%. The Reagan policy overall was a very reactionary policy because it, it was based on these the new theories of neoliberal economics that were becoming popular. And the neoliberal economic policies that have now been in place for four decades and gutted much of the world uh, creating the kind of some of the horrible conditions that we see now were based upon uh, big increases in defense spending based on cutting social programs, cutting welfare programs, cutting standards of living, busting unions and deregulating as much of the economy as possible. So the money was transferred from the positive social programs that were part of the New Deal legacy in the United States and the emerging welfare state to uh, the military and to the uh, private fortunes of the wealthiest of Americans. So what we saw is tax cuts and deregulation 
and an emphasis on wealth and greed. So you can think of the 1980s as the decade of greed. After the 1960s and 1970s that were in some ways very socially conscious decades, the 1980s went the opposite direction. And we've got this new ruling class now that's gonna do so unabashedly and is gonna celebrate their wealth and their superficiality along the lines that Ronald Reagan had made famous. And so it's a, it's a sad period, an unfortunate period, but there's gonna be a sharp increase in defense spending. As I said, 51% from 1981 to 1985, a big increase in the uh, nuclear arsenal. By uh, 1985, the world had accumulated the equivalent of really 1.5 million Hiroshima bombs. So that was the focus. And the idea was the lies, you know, Reagan, we see Trump as the master liar. Well, Reagan was not that far behind him. And uh, Reagan argued that the US had, was asleep at the switch, that the United States had uh, not kept up with Soviet defense spending, that the United States was far behind the Soviets in military spending, that the United States was weak compared to the Soviet Union, that we were vulnerable, and that unless, if we didn't dramatically increase our military spending, then the Soviets were going to take us over. Which wasn't true. Of course not. No, we were far ahead of the Soviets in every category, in every sense. But this was a lie that was spread. And it goes back to uh, Group B with their... Uh, basically coup with the CIA when George H.W. Bush was director of the CIA. And uh, this, this lie that the United States was so weak compared to the Soviet Union, when in fact the United States was much stronger than the Soviet Union. And the Soviets knew that better than anybody. Uh, by the late 1970s, the Soviet economy was in a decline. And that decline would continue through the 1980s. And part of the reason for that decline was that the Soviets were spending such a high percentage of their GDP on the military. And they, the, their strategy was always, and especially once Gorbachev got in there, was to cut defense spending so that they could focus on consumer goods and the things that people really needed. Right. But uh, Reagan's strategy was to outspend them and thereby drive them into the ground. And that was a strategy that in some ways did succeed. It was not the reason why the Soviet Union collapsed, but uh, it was probably a factor. And when Mikhail Gorbachev rises to power in 1985, what are the talks between Reagan and Gorbachev? Are they good or are they do they not go far enough? Well, Reagan, uh, for the first three years or so, really was all about, four years, all about his hawkish right-wing policies and confrontation with the Soviet Union. Uh, but there was another side to Reagan. I have to realize that Reagan was a, you know, he's a Hollywood actor, mostly B-movies, although Reagan resented when Gorbachev or other Russian leaders referred to them as B-movies. He said, tell them they weren't all B-movies. Uh, Reagan was a popular Hollywood actor uh, and made some memorable movies. His 
his favorite really was King's Row. Mm -hmm. uh, King's Row was a fascinating movie. I showed to my students in one of the cla my classes because it's such a dark picture of American life, especially small town American life, this Baroque view, uh, which Reagan gets uh, his legs amputated. And the implication in the movie is that he's been castrated by the surgeon father of his former girlfriend hmm. after Reagan's in an accident. It's a very dark, dark movie, but a fascinating movie. So Reagan was in some interesting ones. One of his favorite roles was uh, the Gipper in uh, Newt Rockney. And he's this famous role line, win one for the Gipper. So Reagan was in a lot of movies and was popular as a result of that. We see how well we do when we've got, we got presidents who make their reputation in Hollywood or on television, we get clowns. And Reagan was in some ways a clownish figure too, although he's not seen that way. Trump's reputation is always going to be uh, uh, as the worst president the U.S. ever had. But Reagan's, uh, the Republicans have glorified Reagan, held him up as a saintly figure. They sanctified him. They've made him the face of the Republican Party. It's no longer Lincoln. It's, uh, it's Reagan. And now it's Trump, much to their eternal shame. Uh, but Reagan was in some ways more destructive than Trump on the international scene and legitimized this 40 years of neoliberal economic policies we've been talking about. Uh, but Reagan was not a, the brightest guy, even before his dementia kicked in. He was uh, late, intellectually lazy. He was a chronic liar. Uh, had no concern about the truth, made things up as he went along, made up numbers, made up quotes, uh, made up stories. Uh, his stories about the Chicago welfare queen that he used to get his way into the White House. His stories, uh, crazy stories about his, uh, his having been there to liberate the death camps, the concentration camps. Uh, which story, you know, he said during World War II, he was there and he filmed the liberation of the death, the Nazi death camps. Uh, he told that story in 1983 to Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir. Uh, he said he was a photographer during the Second World War and he filmed the Allies liberating the Nazi death camps. Well, Shamir was so impressed with this story that he repeated it to his Israeli cabinet. And then it was reprinted, print, it was printed in the Israeli paper Mariv. Uh, and then Reagan told a version of it again to Simon Wiesenthal and the Rabbi Marvin Heyer later. And he said he's been with the Signal Corps filming the camps. And then uh, when the Washington Post reporter Lou Cannon heard about it, he, he mentioned that Reagan had never left the United States during, during World War II. <laughs> he was in Hollywood the whole time. I know, but this is the kind of thing Reagan would do all the time. He always talked about the Chicago welfare queen who had supposedly uh, 80 names, 30 addresses and 12 social security cards. She had a tax-free income of over $150,000. And then he'd change the names and he changed the amounts. He said she had 127 names and she had over uh, 100 different uh, 
uh, uh, checks. Uh, and, you know, but it was meant to convey the story of these greedy, dishonest African-Americans who were stealing from hardworking white Americans. Reagan started his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney had been murdered during the civil rights movement. I mean, so Reagan was signaling always. And as part of this right-wing racist shift of the Republican party taking place. So, it, you know, so it was a mentality and ideology based on white supremacy combined with military spending uh, up the wazoo uh, and cutting social programs, a horrific kind of policy. Uh, and supporting right-wing dictatorships all over the world. And let's talk about that, especially in Latin America, uh, specifically in Central America. What was, you know, Reagan said that he did not know anything about the Iran-Contra affair, but that was a complete lie, correct? He didn't know anything about anything was his problem. He was a total ignoramus. And, he, and, and people who were in his cabinet kept saying how they were shocked by how little he knew. Uh, I mean, William Clark, for example, who became Reagan's national security advisor in 1982, said that he was shocked to discover how little Reagan actually knew about the world. And it was Clark who told his staff, um, since Reagan doesn't read and has very little attention span, what you have to do is, is present information in movies. And I hear even cartoons they would make for him uh, so that he would watch them. That's how he'd learn about the world. But so we're, we're dealing with a man who was colossally ignorant. He did a, a tour of, 19, of Latin America in 1982. And he came back and he told reporters, well, I learned a lot. You'd be surprised. They're all individual countries. You know, it was uh, Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada who uh, wondered, he says, what planet is that man living on? People were shocked how little he knew. Uh, his uh, Soviet expert, Richard Pipes, has said that at National Security Council meetings, the president seemed really lost, out of his depth, un uncomfortable. Uh, the uh, Anthony Quainton, was, uh, who teaches with me at American University, was the counterterrorism coordinator for the Reagan administration. And he was called in to brief the president. And he said, I gave that briefing to the president who was joined by the vice president, the head of the CIA, the head of the FBI, and a member of the National Security and National Security Council members. After a couple of jelly beans, the president dozed off. That was quite unnerving. That was, you know, this is a man who would conduct cabinet meetings by falling asleep. He didn't even know the names sometimes of his cabinet officers. Uh, I mean, this is a man with, uh, Carter uh, went to brief him before Reagan took office. And Carter was shocked that Reagan was not taking any notes. Carter was briefing him on command and control of nuclear weapons. And he said, Reagan wasn't taking notes. So I offered him a, a pad and pencil to take some notes. And Reagan said, no, it's okay, I can remember it. And Carter was totally unnerved by that. So this is the kind of man we're dealing with, a man with little interest in policy, a man who thought in terms of platitudes, said he couldn't understand why the world didn't see the United States as this golden shining knight. You know, who, who uh, you know, we all, he said that they didn't, why didn't, how could everybody not believe that all we want to do is spread freedom and democracy? Well, that was hardly what Reagan did. 
there are some things to say about Reagan and Gorbachev. Mm-hmm. So, so Reagan, uh, this was, there was a series of really good m- movies about nuclear war, one of which was The Day After, came out right. in 1982. Reagan watched it, and Reagan became profoundly depressed. People around him were quite concerned. Reagan had a deep, you know, Reagan didn't have a deep understanding of anything, uh, but he did have a gut level instinct to fear nuclear war. Helen Caldicott, who was the world's leading anti-nuclear campaigner in the 1980s, was at a party at the Playboy Mansion in Chicago. And she met Reagan's daughter, Patty Davis. And Patty Davis invited her to come to the White House to talk to her father. And so, and Helen Caldicott told me the story, but I know she's repeated it elsewhere. And that, uh, so she goes into the room they mark an X on the floor where Reagan's supposed to stand. He comes in and he reads from his three by five file cards. He never had meetings with anybody without having his three by five file cards that he read off of, even his own cabinet members. And there were times like a meeting with the uh, big three auto executives who were about to go to Japan and Reagan briefed them uh, and uh, read to them from his three by five file cards, but somebody had given him the wrong set of file cards. And he's talking about something totally unrelated. And they were so embarrassed that they looked down at the floor and finally he realized that something was wrong, uh, but it, it was that kind of thing. And so he's reading from his three by five file card to Helen Caldicott said, you know, he was a nice, amiable old man. He had an IQ of maybe 80. You know, he had no understanding about missiles or weapons or anything else he was reading about from his file cards. So he had his gut level fear of nuclear war. And when Gorbachev came in there, Gorbachev immediately reached out to him and reached out to him with some friendly letters. And they had a series of meetings. And one meeting, the meeting at Reykjavik in 1986, Gorbachev came with a very bold proposal to eliminate all offensive nuclear weapons. And Reagan was blown away. He didn't know what to do. He started shuffling through his file cards. He couldn't find the right answers to anything. Uh, And then he became somewhat humiliated. And finally, and Gorbachev kept pushing him to eliminate all nuclear weapons. And they came very close to agreeing to do so. In fact, Reagan's advisors, led by George Shultz, said this is the best offer we've ever gotten from the Soviets. Let's take it. Let's do it. But Reagan instead turned to Richard Pearl, the Prince of Darkness, and said, well, what's, what will happen if we uh, agree to this? And Pearl said, it will destroy your missile defense, your Star Wars fantasy. Uh, and so then Gorbachev said, well, I can agree to this as long as you promise to restrict Star Wars to the laboratory for 10 years. Uh, and it had barely entered the laboratory at that point. And Reagan said, I couldn't do it. It would be too devastating for me at home. The cost would be too great. And so because of that, they came so close, the closest we've ever been to eliminating nuclear weapons at Reykjavik. And Gorbachev was so disappointed, as were all the Soviet leaders, because they understood the madness. The 1980s was the time when Carl Sagan and other researchers come out with the understanding that even a limited nuclear war could lead to nu- cause a nuclear winter, which could end all life on the planet. It would, the effect would be to, these, the 
because the soot, the, the smoke, the debris would go into the stratosphere. It would circle the, the earth, block the sun's rays from hitting the earth. Temperatures on the earth would plummet below freezing. Agriculture would be destroyed and people around the world would die from disease and starvation. And, uh, and so this was understood in the 1980s. And so the urgency of getting rid of nuclear weapons, which Gorbachev you know, wanted to do more than anything. Uh, and Reagan's instinct was to do so, but his politics made that impossible. And so uh, yeah, it was a, a lost opportunity. And what was the Star Wars initiative that uh, Reagan was so passionate about? Well, it was a childish idea that you could put a, 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 a dome over the earth basically and, uh, over the, and, and it would block the incoming missiles. You could knock out the incoming missiles. Reagan had been in a movie in which he had some kind of super ray machine and was able to shoot down an incoming missile. Uh, and so he got that idea. It was a childish idea. It really was based on very different principles than modern ballistic missile defense, which is also still unproven and probably a huge waste of money. Uh, so that was a, just a childish idea that you could protect the country with this kind of defensive missile shield. So what was Ronald Reagan's true legacy at the end? Do people today are still very misinformed about what he left behind? Uh, well, the Republicans want to put his name on everything. I mean, the Republicans see him as their hero um, and they want everybody to continue in his footsteps. Uh, so it's not a realistic sense of what he actually accomplished and who he was, but he was uh, handsome and dynamic and, uh, and not really that popular compared to a lot of other leaders, but was more popular than other Republicans since then. And so their legacy is that Ronald Reagan is the face of the party before Donald Trump the reality is that under Reagan, the, um, the, uh, the taxes on the wealthy were reduced sharply. The highest income tax when Reagan took office was 70%. When Reagan left office, uh, it was 28%. I mean, so you get a sense of uh, how much, how the changes, the, there were cuts to food stamps, to welfare, to other social programs that people actually needed. Mm -hmm. It was a tremendous increase in military spending. Uh, the United States tripled its national debt under Reagan. It transformed the United States from the world's leading creditor in 1981 to the world's leading debtor by 1985. Uh, under Reagan, the stock market had the biggest collapse in history since the, the biggest collapse since the Great Depression uh, toward the end of his of his camp career, um, hostile relations with the Soviet Union, uh, overall foreign policy throughout Latin America and Afghanistan, support for right-wing dictatorships, death squads. Uh, I mean, it was, it was a, a disastrous time in American life uh, around, the, around the globe as well as here at home. So the reality of Ronald Reagan is pretty horrific in my view, 
uh, the fantasy about Ronald Reagan, that he was this great president, is uh, something that the Republicans have been trying to weave for four decades now. Professor, thank you for coming on the show. As always, Matt, it's always fun. This concludes this episode of the Untold History of the United States. Thank you for listening. The next week, we come back, we will be analyzing George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton's tenure as president and the continuation of the Reagan ideology in the United States. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at McGill International Review for more up-to-date insight and analysis of global issues and international affairs.